This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It's always a privilege to spend time with God's people, and it's great to have Elaine back. Uh, we miss you greatly, and we thank God that you're here. Um, hopefully, you'll be back soon as well. Now, as we come to Romans 5, I'd like to invite us to first pray and then hear God's word spoken to us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Romans 5, a very precious passage. Today, as we unpack, we realize how much we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, God, for, for all of us as we listen that you help us to engage with our minds wherever it has been for the past week or even today or even just now. That you draw our minds to hear you, that you will prevent the devil from distracting us so we may receive and know the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now as a Christian, before I was a pastor, even before I was one, I found myself attending more funerals than weddings. Perhaps let's speak about the demographics of my friends. Perhaps let's speak about the demographics of the first church that I was in. But I was in more funerals than in churches, uh, than weddings. And I remember more funeral songs than the wedding songs. You know, funeral always caused me to pause and contemplate about life. I'm not sure about you. Do you just go in and have the peanuts and go off? But it always caused me to contemplate our life and see how life flees away too quickly and death comes too suddenly, no matter how old that person has been. An elderly pastor who pastored thousands in Indonesia for decades, he once said this, I remember, he said, if you had to choose between attending a wedding or a funeral when he clashed, he would always prefer the funeral. Because the beautiful words spoken on a wedding was not time-tested yet. But the last word spoken about a person's death concludes everything that he has or she has. Now, if you consider with me for a moment death, the imminent death that you and I, we have to face, no matter how young, how old you are, let me ask this question. What will be the most assuring truth that a dying man or grieving person can have? Let me say that again. What is the most assuring truth that if you are dying or if you are grieving that you can have? I always, always struggle at a non-Christian funeral because I don't have much to say. But when it comes to a Christian funeral, whether it's a dying Christian or those that are grieving, we turn together to the promise that God has given and we cling on to what God has said, because that is all that we have. And that's what the dying man has. He can't bring anything else that he has gained all his life. So as we come to Romans 5, it is a very precious passage, because it is in this passage that we unpack God's promises that he says it is sufficient for us to cross from death into eternal life. So if you are still with me, I invite you to look at Romans 5 on this very precious promise of God, His great words of assurance to all who seek hope and what greater assurance we can have if we can have this. 
So let me read from Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. You can look at it from the bulletin with me. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now after taking a long journey from Romans 1 to Romans 4, and how he has painted that God is justly angry with us. He is just when he's angry with you and with me. But now he can forgive us. And so Paul begins here with the word, Therefore, since we have now been declared to be just in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. What should have been a frightening confrontation for us to face God, make a sudden change to have peace and a warm and joyful welcome. Now to appreciate this this, uh, for a moment as he announced this, we really need to recognize that there is one place that you and I, we don't want to be at. We don't want to be at the presence of God on the day where he unpacks everything that we have forgotten. All the shame, all the guilt, all the sins, all the ignoring of him. Because everything will be due for judgment. We do not want to be at that place. Now imagine with me, for a moment, a, a delinquent student, if you're a teacher or you have been a delinquent student, you, you, you understand this. Delinquent student heading towards the principal's office for being caught red-handed. Or a lazy worker, careless worker who has caused millions walking towards his boss's office. Or a convicted criminal waiting to face the judge and the victim that he has harmed massively. Whichever the case is, you can think of more, the outcome is not good. And if these are bad, our situation, yours and mine, are much worse. Think for a moment, because we will have to face the one who will list out everything that he knows about us. And we have no one to turn to. But then because of our faith in Jesus, the unimaginable twist and turn comes in that the events change. Now imagine that delinquent student, as he head towards the principal's office, he was told, um, just wait a moment, the principal is preparing to present an award for you as being the best student. Or you being that lazy worker, as you shiver and face your boss, you say, well, the CEO is going to give you 24 months bonus for your great work, which you had never done. Or the convicted uh, murder, or convicted um, criminal as he faced the judge, and he says, and you will soon be acquitted innocent. The guy that you stabbed and almost killed, that you almost killed, is waiting to hug you and invite you to his family for dinner. If you, if you think for a moment, Andrew, this is crazy, then welcome to Romans 5. Because what we are receiving here is much crazier and bizarre than all these people. What should have been our experience of charges against us become a glorious moment and we are changed from enemies of God to be at peace with the king of the universe in fact look at what it says in verse 1 therefore since we have been justified through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in fact not only are we declared to be at peace we can boast in our future it says here we can boast in the hope of the glory of God that is we can boast of our future hope where you and I we can be transformed to be what we are meant to be, 
that the universe at one point will turn and look at us and say, wow, look at the glorious image of God. You and I don't look like that at the moment. But that is the hope that we have. And in fact, it's so amazing is this grace of the gift of grace we receive in Christ that how you and I interpret our life presently changes. This is how our future shapes our present. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 with me. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now imagine with me again, that delinquent student or callous worker or guilty criminal, on hearing the change of their situation, the only thing they can say is, pinch me. I need to know this is true. Because things just seem surreal and different. Well, Paul didn't say, pinch me. But he says this, and we glory in our suffering. Such is the change that suffering and pain is no longer just a time of hopelessness. If you're someone who has never experienced great pain or suffering, this is just a theology for you. But if you're someone who has experienced suffering before, this is something that is meant to be true. Because suffering is no longer just a time of hopelessness, but a time to look ahead. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we, you and I, we should start looking for suffering because no one should, not you, not me. I don't want to look for suffering. But Paul is not saying that. He's not asking us to seek after suffering. Rather, he says, Christians, because Christians have future glorious hope, we can respond to suffering very differently from the world. So whether we are Christian or not, this is what we all face. We'll face shock, we'll face pain, we'll face tears, we'll face griefs when you have suffering. When you hear of bad news of your health, or, of, of, or your loved one, or something bad happens, you face the same situation whether you're a Christian or you're not. But when you're a Christian, when facing sufferings, Christians start to turn to God and pray. Christians, when facing sufferings, look to God and cry to God, cling on to God and cling on to the promises that God has all said in the Bible. And facing suffering, Christians begin to consciously see God working in your life. It's meant to be like that when suffering comes in. So hopelessness doesn't set in as suffering comes in, thinking that God has abandoned us, but we'll start to look and see God working in us and suffering will cause us to look to Him as He molds us, as we persevere on as he shapes us to strengthen and hold on to the hope that we have. This is what suffering does. Perhaps a young man, a young woman born in a Christian family may ask this. You may even hear someone ask you this question. How can I grow my faith like Paul? I want to grow my faith. I want to be like Paul. And the wise seasoned Christian, the apostle Paul himself says, just wait and see. As you go through suffering, and persevere in Christ, your hope will grow like mine. Do you want to have a great hope? Do you want to have a strong hope? Paul says it doesn't come through comfort. It comes through suffering. Suffering works in us what pleasures in life can never do. Furthermore, there's also certain sufferings that Christians will face because they're Christians. It didn't exist, but now it becomes a reality. It could be because you are identified as a Christian, 
and the suffering comes from your spouse, from your family, from your parents, from a friend, from a colleague, from a partner, from influential groups, people, leaders. These sufferings can come as ridicule, rejection, persecution, even death. No, sufferings could come from telling people about Jesus. Suffering could come just because you are a Christian at the wrong place or perhaps at the right place at the right time. Now, Paul here, he doesn't specify, is it Christian suffering or suffering because of the fallen world? But he says, sufferings lead us to hope and we can glory in suffering. And furthermore, this hope we have does not disappoint because we have peace with God and God puts this two-sided assurance in us through the Holy Spirit. God puts a two-sided assurance in us through the Holy Spirit. Look at it. The first one is found in verse 5. The Holy Spirit will pour into our heart God's love. The Holy Spirit pours into our heart God's love. Secondly, the Holy Spirit assures us of God's love by pointing us to the death of Jesus on the cross. The Holy Spirit assures us of God's love by pointing us to the death of Jesus on the cross for powerless sinners like you and me. Verse 6 to 8. If someone asks this question, how do I know my assurance as a Christian? Here's Paul's point. Look at the Holy Spirit's work in you. Because here's the reality. No one, no one except Christians who have God's love is willing to suffer and still praise God. Let me say that again. No one except a Christian who has God's love can go through suffering willingly and still give God the glory. There's this man called Job, a book named after him. This is a cow in, in Job chapter 1 and 2. There was this man called Job. He was suffering great just because he was a man who loves God. And the devil wants him to curse God and causes great suffering to him. His children died. His, his assets were lost. But this is what he says. Uh, I've put it up, but let me read to you Job chapter 1 verse 20. When he heard all the bad news and the suffering of experience externally, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the Lord's name be praised. Now in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoings. Instead of cursing God as Satan was hoping on him, he praised and gave glory to God despite suffering. Well, Satan is not happy. As the story goes on, he says, skin for skin, you are causing him suffering external. Try on him and he'll curse you with his last breath. And Satan was given access to him. And this is what happened. Verse 7. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, dear friends, why did we dig into Job? To recognize his response. Job was a person before the birth and the death of Jesus. Job was a man who loved God, but the love of God was in him sufficiently that suffering to him remains suffering, but it doesn't change who God is to him. 
and the whole list of Old Testament people you can find. If you just flip to Romans 11, which we are not doing now, you have tons of names. And if not, that's not sufficient. If you turn to the New Testament, all those who follow Christ, as suffering comes, they do not say, this is God's fault. Why should I still love Him? But they will say, thanks be to God. As they cling on to the promise of God, as they look back to the cross of Christ. Now dear friends, this is what Christians do. God put in Christian this two-sided assurance in His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. Even in suffering, we give Him glory. And second, the Holy Spirit assures us of His love by reminding us back to the cross of Jesus. If you're a Christian or if you're thinking about Christianity, the Christian hope is not a subjective hope. Some people think it's just a mere feeling. It is not a mere feeling that you feel close to God on Sunday when you sing because the, the music was great today, the songs feels good. It is not subjective. It is totally objective because God put His Holy Spirit in us and He put His love in us that we respond despite suffering. And we look back to the historical truth of the love of God that is sealed with blood. So that is where we find security that what God has done in Christ is secure in us. And this blood and death of Jesus that Paul wants that Paul wants to move on to show us that it will result in much more. If he has done great work now, he's going to do much more for us in our future. Look with me to verse 9 and verse 10. Um, I'll read to us. Look at this. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His blood? Notice what the, the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus has done for us now. Now. Now, we are already justified. We are declared right with God today. Now, we are already reconciled with God this moment. And to use Paul's earlier words, we sinners, enemies of God, we are at peace with God when we trust Him now. Do we not then, based on Jesus' death and blood, right now, calls and prays to God as Father? Is that what you do as a Christian? To be able to pray and say, Heavenly Father, you are actually basing on what Christ has done for you now. You are not waiting for the future, you are waiting for now. And if what Christ has done in the past makes it possible for us now, what He has given us, then He will guarantee what will come in the future. He has done what is most difficult, make us right with God, and He will do what is impossible for us, but it will be much easier for our future if we trust in Him. All this we have now is actually, think for a moment, all that we have now as a Christian is securely tied to what we'll have in the future. I want to say this again, and I'll go on from there. What we have now as a Christian is securely tied to what we will have in the future. Now, as, if you look at the word, how much more the emphasis there is actually important because this is, this is your and my experience. Things that haven't happened will increase our anxiety. Is it true? Things that have passed, you look back. Things that are happening now, you have. But things that haven't happen in the future, it will cause you anxiety and all of us have anxiety of the future because it hasn't happened yet. What ifs, the what ifs plagues the minds of non-Christians 
The what ifs also plagues the minds of many Christians as we think about life and think about death in the future. And the world, the voice and the storms of the world will cause us to doubt whether Christ is really sufficient, whether God is really there, and whether heaven will really be true, or whether there is such a thing as hell. Now, there was a bride-to-be. She was going to get married the next day. She was extremely worried. She couldn't sleep. She was lying on the bed. She was twirling the proposal ring, and she was thinking whether her husband-to-be, the bridegroom, would actually turn up at church tomorrow. She was thinking, she was worried, she was scared. All her past flashed across her mind. Her failures, her sins, the scars in her life. What if her bridegroom decide the next day that he will not marry her after all? What if the bridegroom, before tomorrow happens, recognize how unfaithful she had been? How much hurt he had caused, she had caused him? And how unworthy she is to enter this beautiful family? of this groom. The what-ifs plagues her just before her wedding day. Now, and for us Christians, what if on that final day, God changes his mind? What if on the final day, heaven doesn't exist? What if the final day, well, Christ is not sufficient? What has not happened often causes us anxiety, uncertainties. But God is not like us. Christ is not like other bridegrooms. And the Holy Spirit in us will not leave us empty on the hours on the final day. Let's think back for the bride for a moment who started doubting whether the groom would turn up. What she actually needs to bring back to her mind is not that the groom gave her a promise or gave her a ring. What the bride should have remembered was how that man, on many occasions, had risked his life to save her. In fact, she was one with cancer, with her lungs almost gone, and she's still breathing because the man who promised to marry her gave his own, or part of it, so that she could stay alive. If he, she had, if he had given his own life of all that he has to save her and preserve her, will he not turn up the next day for the wedding? Well, this story of this lady is fictitious. I just came out of it over the week. But God is not like that. Neither His promises. Because God, when He loved us and He gave His Son on the cross, He has given us the one that could save us. He has put Him there in order to make us right with Him. He has put Him there so that we are, we are at peace with Him. Will He on the last day decide to pull out His wrath again and relight the anger again? that he has fully quenched on his son. And Paul says, no way. Jesus has done the most difficult thing of bringing us to Christ. How much more will we be welcomed by God on the final day of salvation? So dear friends, as we reach this point, I want to ask, what are you and I trusting for our sins to be, to be saved from sin and death? Why are we trusting our life for that final day? Is it Christ? Or is it Christ and many other things? Or have we put ourselves fully at the trust, at the feet of Jesus, that He will save us? Because this is what you will have to cling on to on your final day. This is what you have to say to someone who is facing his final day. 
or who have just lost someone who has trusted in Jesus, what do you have to cling on to? What can you give to someone who trusts in Jesus on the final moment? No, if you have fully trust in Jesus, in His blood, His death, then not only can we be secure in this life, that we can be secure for the future salvation that we have. And we can say with Paul in verse 11, that we can boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, dear friends, if we have not trusted in Jesus, then can I say, you and I, we should rightly be concerned and be insecure about how life will end. Don't ignore it because it will come. If we're not yet Christians today, I pray that we will consider carefully what God has offered to you and me because this offer is not an option that's good to have. It was offered because there's no other options that you and I have in our hands. Because... Hell is real. Judgment is real. That's why Christ is so real. Now, Christians, if you are someone who has trusted in Jesus, can I say this to understand our faith? That we have trusted in Jesus when He died for us. We are continuing to have faith and trust in Jesus now. And we'll finish our journey trusting in Jesus because He who began with us will bring us home. And that's what we have. And that is precious. We never move away from trusting in Jesus because Jesus is enough. In a place where people have not heard the gospel enough, they hear about Jesus and they start accumulating other things. But Jesus is enough according to Paul. Now dear friends, we could have end here, but I want to just move to 12 to 21 further because I want to bring out just two very important points that is linked here. Because the, And the first one is this, that all of us, those sitting here and those of us who believe, those of us who are sitting on the fence, whether we want to believe in Jesus, we need to recognize the horror of sin. Unless we recognize the horror of sin, we will not recognize the capacity of Jesus Christ. So as we move to 12 to 21, I want to show you the horror of sin and we will understand and appreciate the power that we are trusting in for what is ahead. So let me read verse 12 for us. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. Have you have you played the game knock knock before with children? How it goes? Knock knock. Who's there? And then they'll carry on the game. Have you played that before? Yes. No. Nobody knows this game. We don't know. Come to my house for dinner. You have plenty of that. Um, but here we have a version of that. But it's not a joke. It's not a children's joke. And this is our human history. The first voice came and says, knock, knock. The second voice says, who is there? The conversation continues, sin. Sin who? Sin and death. That is our story. That is the history of humanity. Right at the beginning, God gave Adam everything. You can eat anything, everything. But this, the knowledge of good and evil, you are not to. I decide what is good and evil. God says, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you die. Man tempted, was tempted and he goes against God, which is called sin. And he says, and I will eat it and I will not surely die. On that day when Adam, the first man, says, and I choose what is right and wrong, sin entered. And sin came with death. Because sin and death are together 
it's like, okay, this is not, doesn't sound very great, but laxative and toilet runs comes together. Uh, maybe not everybody gets that, but when you have your laxative, it, it comes together with what is meant to do. Sin and death comes together. When sin comes, it always tails behind death. They are inseparable. You don't have one and not have the other. Now as you read on verse 12, 15, 17, we're told this very interesting thing. It says, when the first man sinned, when Adam sinned, death came to all human beings because all sin. When Adam sinned, Death came to all human beings and all sin. Now, this is a difficult doctrine to understand. How did one man sin and all sin? But it is not too difficult if we examine our own life to experience it, to see how that really works. We may not fully understand how Adam's one act results in all sins. You can ask during Q&A. We can engage on that. But there are at least three things that Paul explains about yours and my, our relationship with Adam, our relationship with sin, and our relationship with death. Three, and I'll, I'll bring it out to you. I put it on the slide. The first one is this, that we're all counted as sinners because Adam. So whether it means biologically because Adam is the, the first one when he sinned, everything passed down, or representative, he represents us when he sinned, all of us. Whichever the case, the point is that we sin when Adam sinned because sin is being put on us when Adam sinned. Meaning, what is true of Adam is surely true for all humans. Okay, that's one. Okay, that's a hard one to grab. Hold that on. You can ask questions more later. But the second one, you and I should be familiar of. Because we also inherit the sinful nature of Adam. That is, you and I, we too actually sin. We actually do rebel against God. We actually do spit at the face of God. In our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our deeds, we do constantly sin by making ourselves more important than God. In fact, it is against our human nature now. It is against our human nature to think of God as the center and the world revolves around Him. Because our human nature is, we are the center and God revolves around us. So it's easy when things go wrong, we blame it on God. It's easy when we want something, we ask God as if He is that money tree, we shake Him high now, we give Him a chicken, we do something good, He's meant to give us back. Because our human nature says, we are the center and God revolves around us. If you don't understand the first one, the second one is our experience. And so the third one, because we have sinned, when Adam sinned, because we sinned, because we have the same sinful nature, all of us, you and I, the whole world, we face the consequence of death. And as Paul explains the power of sin uh, to his, by now it's the Jewish and Gentile uh, Romans, as he's talking to them, he wants to make sure they understand something that is really deep about sin and death. And this is it. Sin and death actually came in with Adam before Moses and the law came about. Sin and death came in with Moses before the law was even given, before there's a division of Jews and Gentiles. Because ever since Adam, he's the first man who literally sin against the law because God only gave one law don't eat and he says and I will from him on to Moses it's a long time before new laws came about but from then sin has been doing its job and death has been consuming its fruits it's like a child who helps himself to a stranger's money purse or a man who takes his neighbor's wife 
before Moses came, these things do happen. It's only when the law comes, it just tells you that you are doing, this is wrong, and then they go against it. It's like, when the law came, it's like this, that finally there's this freshly painted law that says God's law is this, and they plant it right in front of you, and that's when this painted thing comes in. Humans can now officially go to the, the painted law and go, that's exactly what's happening. But before the thing comes, we've been doing it. We've been going against God. But when the thing comes, we can officially spit at it and say, I be my own God, you get lost. And that's how the law and the sin and death comes in. So this rebellion against God called sin bears the consequence of death for us. And only those who repent and turn to Jesus can possibly get out of what we are meant to face. So all under Adam who live under sin will face death, but those who have come under Christ, all who are under Christ, will face forgiveness, will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Now dear friends, here's something that is meant to wake the Jewish Gentiles, uh, the Jewish Romans, the Gentile Romans, is meant to wake us up. Because the biggest division in our world really is not the Jews and Gentiles. The biggest division in our world is whether you're under Adam or you have moved to be under Christ. That is the biggest division. And perhaps you're someone who's young and healthy at the very moment. Destructive power of sin and death seems such a long distance that you can think about later on. If that's the case, you know, I pray that God will actually help you and me to actually catch a glimpse of how sin has been entertaining us and distracting us in order that we may not see that death is just behind our tail, waiting to eat the fruits of sin. I pray that God will do that for you and me before it's too late. But now, it's only when we start to understand the power of sin and who we are if we under sin and our nature and the consequence we are faced, then we start to turn and understand the power of Christ and the gift that God is offering at the price of His Son. So let me read as we consider verse 15 to 17. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? And verse 17, let me read that for us. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? You know, Paul really is not, if, if you just look at Romans, it's just a comparison of Adam and Christ, you're making a mistake. It's showing you the power of sin, but the greatness, far greater power that Christ has because that is exactly what you and I need when we face death. That we need to hold on to something and a truth that guarantees it's more powerful than the one that is coming to consume us. One power that's powerful enough to undo all that has happened, that even as death consumes, that life comes back. Now compare with me for just a moment Two powers, the power of destruction and the power of restoration. I'm going to give you some examples to think about this. The power of destruction, can you think of power of destruction? Hurtful words, the adultery of a spouse, an act of murder, 
irreversible illnesses, decaying of your body, you're dying, the power of war, the potential world destruction, power of atomic bombs. I mean, you, you name more destructive powers you can think of. Okay, think of all this power. All this can happen in a moment. But what power do you need to reverse and restore all of this? Any of this. What do you need? Imagine the power needed to completely restore these destructive powers that have impaled on the world or on you. you know, what power do we need to, to fix a broken trust? What power do we need to, to restore a family who has lost the only daughter to a drunkard? What power do you need to restore children who have lost, young children who have lost the father to a illness? What power do you need to restore to a country that is war-torn and millions are on the, on the soil? What power do you need to restore when the atomic bomb explodes out of man's pride? What power will you restore all of this. In fact, if you look around, no power can do that. We can make things feel better, we can have more entertainment to distract pain, but what power can do that? No power can restore the destruction power that comes until you and I come to the Bible and we start to read about Jesus, we start to see someone with a potential to do all the impossible. The man who calmed the life-threatening storm the man who healed the, the child who was diseased and sick, the man, the, the one who raised a child from the dead, the one who rose himself from the dead, and the one who reveals that actually this whole world is created by me. That one man is more powerful than all the destructive power that a world can have, that sin can have. That's why many died by the sin of one man, Adam. But how much more by the grace of one man, Jesus, can overflow to many. And this whole thing of grace is a gift. Look at how many times gift is repeated as we are almost concluding. Verse 15, the gift. It's not like transpires. God's grace and the gift that came by Jesus. Verse 16, the gift of God, the gift brought justification. Verse 17, those who receive God's grace and gift of righteousness shall reign in life. No, instead of sin reigning, those who receive the gift of God gets to transfer from under Adam, the camp Adam to camp Jesus. As we conclude, friends, we, we need to recognize what Romans 5 actually has its implication for you and for me. No, if we are not Christian or we are fooling around with sin, thinking that sin does not stink, can I just plead with you through Romans 5 that sin is never alone. If you see him alone, you should be scared because death is always around the corner. And we need to repent and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, to be pulled out from camp Adam into the camp of the saving living king. But if you are Christians who have truly put our faith in Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Jesus as your king, then let us keep looking to Jesus. Let us keep continue to put our faith in Jesus and pray that the Holy Spirit who has put God's love into our hearts will help us to experience His love and trust in His love and to look back to the cross as evidence of His love. So that our faith that we have first put in, that we still have and we will continue to cling on to, will bring us from death on that final moment into eternal life because that's what we have.
That's all we have, but that's all we need. And if that's the case, then we can read as we close verse 21. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as I close off this point, come back to the question just now. What is the greatest assurance for those dying or grieving in Christ? The assurance is this, after death, after sin and death, give their best shot that they will be raised to eternal life. Let's close this time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Romans 5, it's a beautiful passage reminding us of the greatness of Christ and the gift you have given us. Oh Father, we pray that you help our eyes to see, give us spiritual eyes to see that how fast life runs away and how soon death will come. Help us to catch a glimpse of sin that plays around in our life and watch because death is just around the corner. Help us turn to Christ and plea and trust in Him so that our confidence will never be what we have and that our fear will not overwhelm us. And the faith that we have and we still have and we will finish our journey, you will bring us, even as death and sin gave their best shot, that you will bring us into eternal life. For the glory of Christ and His power we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.